Welcome back. Okay, come up. Now, now I can. Now. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, morning parishioners. Or afternoon, whenever you're watching this, being a part of this. It's good to be in the presence of God. This is uh, Memorial Day weekend, and so you can look around and tell all the people in our congregation who do not have cabins. There you go. <laughs> this is the poor people's service. So we get ourselves extra righteousness points. Maybe there's some people here who actually chose to be here, even though you have a cabin. Uh, but... Uh, We'll get our cabin in glory. I don't need one now. No, no, no. I'll, I'll just get by here without one. I'm righteous. Hallelujah. <laughs> so we're in the series called Glimpses of Truth. It's based largely on Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where the author tells us that in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, people got glimpses of the truth, where God revealed himself in various ways and various degrees, it says. Uh, but in these last days, God has given us the truth himself. These last days being this last epic, and, and it starts with the coming of Jesus. And with the coming of Jesus, we don't have a glimpse of the truth. We have the full truth. Jesus is the full truth and nothing but the truth. Amen. Thank God. Uh, and, 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 and so the, in, in the Old Testament, they had glimpses of the sun on a cloudy day. But when Jesus comes, we've got the sun himself and the sun itself, and there's no clouds. So Jesus reveals exactly what God is like. Now, this tells us a whole lot about the Bible. Uh, if there's a progression from glimpses to the full thing, that means this is a story that unfolds. And, and there's a progress in the story. And, and uh, you have to read everything leading up to the kind of climactic chapter, which begins with Jesus. You have to read everything in the light of what we find out about God in Jesus Christ. It's a story, and it's progress. It means you can't read the Bible like a flat book, like a theological textbook. You can't read the Bible the way, unfortunately, most people read the Bible. Where everything has equal value. doesn't matter really where it is. It's just so you pick out a verse and bam, since it's all God-breathed and we all believe that, people think that, therefore, everything's equal, equally authoritative. But if you read the New Testament, uh, that's not how they treat the biblical narrative. It's not all equal. Uh, it, everything in, prior to Christ is there for the purpose of leading up to Christ and to pointing towards Christ. But there's a development there. There's a story there. They got glimpses. They got glimpses. Better glimpses, increasingly clear glimpses, but boom, now we've got the Son himself. We've got the truth itself. And this is, this is uh, he, he reveals exactly what God is like all the way down to his very essence. That's what Hebrews 1.3 tells us. He's the radiance of God's glory. And the place in Jesus' life that, that, that sort of captures the theme of his whole life, his ministry, his teaching, that sums up the way he glorifies God and what he reveals about God, the place where that happens is on the cross. That's why... Jesus taught that you know, it's, it's in the hour, in this hour, he says in John 12, when he's going to be lifted up, that's when he'll glorify the Father. Now, he glorifies the Father all the time, and if you see him, you see the Father all the time, but you most clearly see the distinctive thing he reveals about the Father when he's lifted up on the cross. And there we see that God is a God who would rather die for his enemies than to crush his enemies. 
kill his enemies. He's a God who, whose very essence is perfect, unwavering, other-oriented, self-sacrificial, nonviolent, enemy-embracing love. And so John sums up uh, the revelation of God in Christ when he says, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And then he defines love by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down his life, our life for one another. Love is about ascribing unsurpassable worth to another at cost to yourself when necessary. Uh, it's, 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 about, it's self-sacrificial. It's other-oriented. It affirms the worth of the other. And God is this, John says. So, so self-sacrificial love isn't just a verb that God does. It is the noun that he eternally is. His very essence is love, which means that everything then that God does, every verb that he engages in, is an expression of the noun that he is. Following that? He verbs love because he nouns love. He's eternally the noun love. So every verb he does is, is an expression of his love. And that brings us to the topic for today. We're talking about, is God angry? Has always been angry? What do you do with the, some of the angry, wrathful portraits of God in, 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 in the Old Testament? And some would argue even in the New Testament. How do we understand those? Well, see... If we understand that God is love, then it means that, that even God's anger, even God's judgment, even God's quote-unquote wrath, you have to understand to be an expression of love. Love isn't one of the attributes of God. Alongside all the others, love is the essence of all the attributes of God. Amen. Like that came out just right. I want to say that again. <laughs> love isn't one of the attributes of God. Love is the essence of all the attributes of God. I'd write that one down and tweet it if I were you. So you see, you sometimes hear, hear things like this. Honestly, sometimes when you're teaching, it's like you, you listen to yourself, it comes out of you, and you didn't plan on it. It's like, well, that was pretty good. <laughs> Normally what I say is kind of idiotic, but that, once in a while, it comes out good. So I hear people all the time often pushing back on stuff I teach. They'll say things like, yes, yes, look, God is love. I totally believe that, but, but God's also just. Got to balance it. Yes, God is love, but God's also holy. You have to have a balance view of God. God is holy, yes, yes, but he's also wrathful against sin. We have to have a balanced view of God. I call it the love but doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> the love but concept of God. Yes, God's loving but. God's loving but he's holy. Love, loving but he's just. Loving but he's wrathful. And, and, and so you think you, you balance things by qualifying the love. But see, God's love isn't one of the attributes you can put, aside, put alongside of other attributes like justice and holiness and his wrath. No, the love is the essence of his, all of the other attributes. His justice, his holiness, his wrath. And so the, God is love, and there is no but. God is love, and there is no but. Rather, God is love, and therefore everything God does and every attribute he has is an expression of the love that he is. And love is defined by the cross, which is why our understanding of God has got to be solidly anchored in the cross from beginning to end. Keep your eyes on the cross. To know what anything means in God, we have to keep our eyes on the cross where we have the perfect revelation of who God is. God is love, full stop. <laughs> From eternity to eternity, God is perfect, unwavering, unfathomable, incomprehensible, uncompromisable, unqualifiable, other-oriented, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing love. And everything God does then is an expression of that. Now, for some of us, that's been kind of hard to receive. In fact, for all of us, to some degree, it's hard for that to get on the inside. Because we've got all sorts of other conceptions of God that bump up against that. I mean, when I was a kid, I've shared this before, but, but I, I, you know, my view of authority, 
to think of authorities was, was that they're mad at me. The one thing I was good at in life was getting authorities to be mad at me. Uh, and so, so I was always in trouble. Uh, you know, I had ADHD and stuttering problems, so I was always frustrated and went to the strict Catholic, Irish Catholic school. And, 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 and so everyone was mad at me. Nuns were mad at me. Mother Superior was mad at me. It was just like, that's, and sometimes they'd express their anger in violent ways. And that's my view of authority. Authorities are ticked off at me, and they can strike at any moment. So I'd go to the Catholic school, and I'd have my head bashed with a family Bible a couple times a day, and I'd have the Mother Superior smack me with an ugly stick, this big swaddled stick because I was misbehaving, and have, they have rulers that they smack your knuckles with, and, and, and you know, they're always mad. And then you go home, and I would get the same treatment or worse for my stepmother, who kind of snapped whenever she got angry. And she was the main authority in my life because my dad was gone most of the time. So my view of authority was just that authorities are, are angry with me and they can strike at any moment. And so that was my view of God. I didn't think that God is love. I thought God is ticked. God is ticked off. He's really mad. And he can strike at any moment. It didn't help that in, in, the, in the church that I had to go to every morning. We had mass every morning. Uh, and, and, uh, and it was said in Latin. This is... Right during the Vatican II period. But this church, or this, this particular parish, was kind of resistant to that because it was a very conservative parish. So he kept on doing Latin, uh, Mass in Latin, which, if you have ADHD, is torture. <laughs> e pluribus unum sante, but you be. I'm supposed to pay attention to that. It's like, so I get, you always get in trouble. But in, in, this, in, in this cathedral, all of the pictures of God, the stained glass windows and, and other things, uh, they were like enraged, but they all looked kind of austere, serious, not very friendly, not very welcoming. Nothing really to like about those pictures of God. The only friendly face in this cathedral that I had to go to every morning was uh, this statue of Mary. It was up to the left. And Mary was, the Virgin Mary was holding the baby Jesus. And she was so beautiful and had this serene look and had a little smile on her face. And, and uh, I just was in love with that Mary. And fortunately for me, and, and it's my Catholic tradition, uh, you're taught that you can pray to Mary. In fact, you need to pray to Mary. In fact, we're taught that sometimes it's, it's better to pray to Mary than to, to, to Jesus because Jesus always listens to his mother. That's what, they, that's what they taught me. And so I figured I don't have a chance. If I'm going to get in the pearly gates, it's not with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're ticked off. They don't like me, but Mary is my ticket. And so I talk to Mary all the time. I prayed, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou amongst women. Blessed for the Lord of Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother God. Pray for the sinner now at the hour of my death. Amen. All the time. It's like, because she's the only one I thought who, who kind of liked me. And I think God used that to get me through some really tough times. I'd say I have, I have one friend in heaven. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think God, you know, he always accommodates where you're at. And that's where I was at. So he comes down. I think he worked through Mary uh, to minister to this poor soul. But that, that was my view of God. Now, I, I quit believing when I was 12. Uh, you know, my stepmother finally moved out. Hallelujah. And, and, and so we, we uh, uh, my dad declared he was an atheist. The only reason he was going to church was because of my stepmother. So I thought, I'm an atheist. So for four years, I didn't believe in God. And that felt really good not to have this angry God always looking at you. But then I come to Christ when I'm 17. Um, and and uh, I, I love the good news about Jesus. He died for me. And, and now my sins can be forgiven. That's good. But see... My view of God basically didn't change. Now I'm just going to believe in that again. And so I had this view of God as the ultimate authority. is ticked off and he can strike at any moment. And then Jesus, oddly enough, becomes sort of my protector against God. Jesus saves me from God. <laughs> Jesus is my insurance against God. 
Because, you know, God would have vented his wrath on me, but Jesus stepped in the way and took it for me. Like That's how I conceived it. That's what I was taught. And so he bears the brunt. But this father figure, you know, is something I need to be protected from. So Jesus saved me from God. What is wrong with that picture? And yet there's a lot of people who believe that. They don't, they don't say that, but that's their conception of God. God's ready to get, get you. But Jesus is like, no, Dad, take me instead. Um, and then it, even, the, even the insurance from the Father was not very good because uh, it's this Holy, Holiness Pentecostal church where you're only as saved as your last sinless minute. Every sin separated you from God, you'll get resaved. So what kind of insurance is that? It's like having car insurance that protects you uh, and, and it, it, it covers you unless you have an accident. <laughs> the purpose for the insurance is to cover you when you get an accident. So what kind of insurance is this? Uh, but we, 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 uh, that, that's what the good news is. That, that's the good news. Hallelujah. Jesus protects you until you need protection. Then the Father's going to get you. So, so, so what was going on there was I was projecting onto God my understanding of authority and my understanding of judgment and anger and all the rest. God became a super example of all the authorities in my life. But that's what human beings have been doing throughout history. We take our ideas about what God is like and basically it's all the things that we would do if we were God and we project it onto God. So God becomes a projection of ourselves. There's a guy in the 19th century named Feuerbach and he wrote this book, The Essence of Christianity. And he was, he was an atheist and he was arguing that, that, that basically God is just a projection of ourselves up on a cosmic scale. And the truth is, to a large, large degree, he was right. For most people throughout history, God has been a projection. That's why the gods look like versions of human beings just on steroids. They're temperamental, they get ticked off, they rage, and they get violent. And so when they get violent, they send their earthquakes and famines and diseases and mudslides and wars and rapes and all the other kind of stuff. And that's been the basic picture of God throughout history, including, sadly, in the Christian tradition. And see, God isn't a God who coerces people into believing the truth. He loves people even when they're believing in errors. And, and, and he'll work with them even in their, their believing in the errors. And that's why we find in the Old Testament, the only, that's why they only got glimpses of truth. God isn't going to lobotomize their brain, coerce their brains to get them to have a right view of him. So he has to work with them as they are. And he works by means of influence. He's not, he's not coercive. But that's why, folks, if you have glimpses of truth, you're going to have some clouds. And so as we read the Old Testament, in my opinion now, you have to understand that there's glimpses of truth, the sun breaks through, but there's also clouds. Here's an example, example of a cloudy picture of God. If Jesus is exactly what God is like, then any picture that disagrees with Jesus is, is, is going to be a cloudy one. And we have to be able to discern the clouds, distinguish the clouds from the sun. So in this portrait of God, Ezekiel says, This is what the Lord says. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I'm going to cut off the righteous and the wicked, my sword will be unsheathed against every, everyone from south to north. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its sheath. This is a portrait of God that where he's so intoxicated with rage, just so he's going to take out that sword and he's just going to start swinging. And it doesn't matter whether you're righteous or you're wicked, whether you're young or old, he's going to just slaughter from the south up to the north. Everyone from the north to the south, south to the north is going to be slaughtered. And this indiscriminate rage is just going to erupt. Then later on in this chapter it says, well then my, my wrath will be satisfied or satiated and I'll stop. He's just got a, he's like a rageaholic. Now, here's the thing. When, when, I, when I came to Christ, I was told I was supposed to read the Bible. So I'm 17, I'm supposed to read the Bible. And 
No one told me about progressive revelation, how, you know, the pictures of God get more Christ-like and, and in some parts, later parts, correct the earlier parts, and you've got to read it from the, from, the, from the perspective of the end and, and, and uh, you know, anchor your, your view of God on, on Christ. No one told me about that. No one told me that, that some of these portraits are going to be, to some degree, projections of the people because they only had glimpses of truth. No, I didn't hear that. And so I just started reading the, the Bible, and like any other book, I thought you start at the beginning and you go through to the end. And so I start confronting pictures of God like this. And you know what? That just confirmed all of my worst fears about God. God it turns out God is as ugly as I thought God was. God is a giant mother superior, her, my mother-in-law. And, and uh, uh, it can strike at any moment, the ultimate authority. Just sometimes gets mad and just starts raging and starts slaughtering. Sounds a whole lot like my stepmother. Confirmed all my projections. So if God is in a, the ultimate authority who can get angry at any moment and can strike at any moment. And see, here's the thing. I can fear that God. I, I can fear that God. But I cannot love that God. I can, in fact, I can fear that God and I can say I love you. Because if I don't, he'll squash me. But I can't genuinely love a God who can fly off the hook and slaughter indiscriminately. And it can, it can strike at any moment without rhyme or reason. Uh, and, and so you're in this position where you, gotta, you have to say I love you because he's the one holding the giant sword over your head. But you can't, if you're morally healthy, it, you, you can't genuinely say, oh, what a lovely God. I, I just naturally fall in love with this God. And sadly, this is a position that so many Christians are in. They sincerely... They, 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 they want to love God, um, but they have a picture of God that's just not lovely, not lovable, but they have to say, I love you, and they have to say you're good. It's amazing. You read throughout church history, Augustine and others say God is all good, and he's all lovely, and it's all together beautiful, and then they ascribe to him the most horrendous behaviors you can imagine. So what does loving mean, or what does good mean when you're ascribing it to a deity who can predestine the majority of people to go to hell, including your newborn little baby? And, and glorifies himself in the destruction and the torture of, of uh, those he has predestined to suffer. This is what happens when we project our stuff onto God. We get some conflicting pictures of God. When it comes to thinking about God's anger or God's judgment or God's wrath, as well as God's love and God's anything, when it comes to understanding God, folks, we can't assume anything. We shouldn't assume anything because the degree that we're assuming stuff, we're just projecting our stuff onto God. And some of it may be right, but a lot of it could be wrong. But we won't know the difference because God can't correct our views because we're assuming we already know. When it comes to thinking about God, I submit that we need to let God teach us. Let God lead us. Let God reveal himself to us. Rather than assume we know what it means that God brings judgment, let's, let's, let, let's sit at the feet of Jesus and, and learn what it means when God brings judgment. Let's sit, sit at the feet of the cross, the foot of the cross. and Because uh, the cross is the clearest revelation of what God is like. The cross is a revelation of how God brings judgment, of what God's judgment is. It's the perfect revelation of how God brings judgment on sin. Now, that may surprise some of you because you've heard me say a million times that the cross is a perfect revelation of God's love. So how can the cross be both a perfect revelation of God's love and also a perfect revelation of God's wrath? Well, follow this. And by the way, this is one of those sermons you're going to have to have your thinking caps on the whole time, right? A lady came up to me afterwards last night and said, why do you always give me a headache? You know, that's a sign of me that I did a good job. So, so be thinking here. This is only a question that arises if you think that love is one of the attributes of God. 
If you understand that love is the essence of all the attributes, well, then there's no problem understanding how the cross is both a revelation of God's wrath and a revelation of God's love because the wrath is simply an expression of his love. Got it? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 what was it Seth used to say? Uh, got it? No, no. Get it? Got it? Good. Okay. Get it? Good. All right. So the, the, the cross is a revelation of God's judgment. Uh, uh, in Matthew 14, or Mark 14, it says this. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, so remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, Jesus wasn't in the garden holding a coffee cup, just having a nice little, little spot of tea. And I said, oh, Father, will you take this cup from me? I don't want to walk and get rid of myself. No, there's no actual cup there. The cup is a metaphor, and the metaphor comes out of the Old Testament. And the cup is a metaphor for God's wrath. You find this dozens and dozens of times. The cup is a metaphor of God's wrath. Um, for example, in, in Jeremiah 25, uh, it says this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take the wine cup of this fury, or it could be this wrath, at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send it to drink it. Drinking from this cup was drinking from the cup of God's wrath. And there's a long history behind that, but we don't have time to get into it. But it, what Jesus is expressing here is he's aware of that. He is going to stand in our place as a sinner. And he is going to then bear all the death consequences of sin. All the, sin is inherently self-destructive. And God's mercy protects us from that self-destructiveness. But on the cross, Jesus is going to bear all of that. And that's the wrath of God. He's going to stand in our place and he's going to be under the judgment of God. He's going to drink of that cup. And that cup is the cup of God's wrath. But notice this. Though Jesus is standing under the judgment of God, the Father isn't angry with Jesus. There's nothing that indicates that, that the Father has rage towards Jesus. This wrath that he's going to stand under, apparently, is not a wrath that's motivated by anger. In fact, it's motivated by love. Um, and, 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 and so, so he, this is why the cross is both a revelation of, of, of God's love, but also of, of, God's, uh, of God's wrath, because the two are the same. Everything Jesus does, he does because he loves the Father, and he knows the Father loves him. And so his obedience to the Father in this is an expression of love. But there's no, the Father's not angry with Jesus. So yes, Jesus is standing under the judgment of God, but apparently the judgment of God doesn't presuppose that God is personally angry at anybody. Also notice this. Jesus is standing in this position, the position of, of being under God's wrath, but the Father never acts violently towards Jesus. Now, what, what Jesus suffers, because he's bearing the consequences of the sin of the world, it's a violent judgment. There's a lot of violence there. It's hideous. It's, it's, it's gross. But it, the violence isn't caused by the Father. The Father never lifts a finger towards Jesus. Rather, all, the only thing that, that God the Father does is he turns Jesus over to these violent humans operating under these principalities and powers, and they carry out all the violence towards Jesus. And they're the ones who have all the anger towards Jesus. It's not the Father who's angry and violent. It's people. But the Father turns him over to, to, to these people. That's why Paul says, uh, God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up, delivered him over. And in Romans 4, he delivered Jesus over. Paradidomine means that just to hand something over, pass something on. He didn't protect Jesus. He allowed this to happen. That's the only thing God did in bringing judgment on Jesus, and that's the only thing I submit to you that God ever does when he brings judgment. He allows it to happen. He delivers Jesus over. But the Father doesn't act violently in these judgments, and he's not angry in these judgments. The judgment is simply him allowing people to undergo, to suffer the consequences of their own decisions. Also note this, that the plan to have the Father deliver Jesus over was settled upon by the, the entire triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They agreed upon this plan from the foundation of the world in case human beings should fall, and I think that was probably inevitable. But they had this plan, and so it was agreed to. 
Um, it, this wasn't something that was forced on Jesus. Jesus voluntarily, and that's why it's an act of love. It wouldn't be love if it was forced on him. He voluntarily allowed himself to be delivered over. And the whole plan was this expression of the love that God is and the love that God has for us. And the, the reason that's kind of important right now is, is there's this little scuttle going on as a result of uh, the crucifixion of the warrior God. Uh, where people are, are debating, this, this, does, does, does Boyd really believe that the Father forsook Jesus? How could he possibly believe that? that? That Jesus was abandoned by the Father. How could he possibly believe that? Well, for one thing, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? That's kind of, that's one reason to believe it. But, but here's the thing. If you ask the question, did the Father really forsake Jesus? You, you have to answer that yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, he did in, in this sense. He delivered Jesus over right? He, 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 he didn't protect Jesus. He allowed these, these violent human beings to do what they wanted to do to Jesus. And yes, he was forsaken in the sense that when he stood in our place and he bore the sin of the world, he's experiencing from the inside of the horror of the sin of the world. And it's from that perspective that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing forsakenness. Sin is at its essence pushing God away. And so when God lets people go, they go away. And so sin is separation from God, and Jesus is genuinely experienced that. So yes, he's experiencing genuine forsakenness, and the Father did deliver him over. But also, no, the Father didn't really forsake him, because the plan to forsake him was agreed upon. This is just agreed upon thing. Okay, you didn't genuinely abandon Jesus. And, and, and the, the, the plan is an expression of God's love, the love that he is and the love that he has for us. And it's the love of God that unites the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's never broken. It's never threatened. That's, that's, that's the eternal essence of God. And so ironically, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's expressing the perfect unity of the Godhead. Because it's that other-oriented love that unites the Godhead. So when, 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 when Jesus stands in our place and undergoes the judgment or the wrath of God, the Father's not angry with him, and, and uh, they're still united in, in perfect love, and there is no violence on God's part. Lock that in. Two other things that about, the cross, that about judgment that we learn from the cross. Number one, far from having rage towards the Son, the Father has a grieving heart when he has to de de deliver his Son over. He's grieving. And Jesus reveals that this is the heart of God whenever there's a judgment. In Luke 19, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and he gives this prophecy about a coming judgment that's going to come on Israel. It says this, when he came near to the city of Jerusalem, he beheld the city and he wept. The word kleo can be translated as he cried or even that he wailed. And he said, as he was wailing, if you, even you, had known even today would bring, what things would bring you peace, which isn't a complete sentence. Which I, I think he's wailing because he didn't, doesn't even finish the sentence. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And as he's crying, he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and press you in on every side. And then he says, next, next slide. There. They will dash you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another within you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a judgment that's coming on Israel, uh, and, and um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's horrendous. Now note here, it's a violent judgment, but God doesn't do the violence. The only thing God does, it says in other passages, God left the temple desolate. Your temple is desolate, which means it's vacated, and the temple was understood by Jews to be the house of God. God has vacated the premises. He's, you've pushed them away so persistently that finally God's giving you your wish. You want me to go? I'm going to go. 
And that's going to be terrible for you because now your enemies are going to bank around you and your enemies are going to do terrible, terrible stuff. And they did. From 66 to 70 AD, they ransacked Jerusalem, tore down the temple, slaughtered, massacred thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and survivors were banished from, from the holy city. Uh, but all that was done by the Romans, not God. And note, though this is a genuine judgment for God, God isn't out there personally angry with them. He's, he's not trying to get even. He's not being vindictive. He, 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 his heart is grieving. This is, this, is, this is tearing him apart. He's wailing. And since Jesus reveals exactly what God is like all the time, we need to, whenever we are reading a judgment of, of God in Scripture, uh, behind that there is a wailing God, a crying God. Now, the, the Old Testament authors usually couldn't see that, though we'll see here in a moment, sometimes they could. But usually, that is, that's so far, it's, it's so different from what everybody in the ancient Near East thinks about God, and, and the Old Testament authors are somewhat conditioned by that culture. They don't usually envision God crying when he brings a judgment. But we know what God's really like, and so as we read the Bible, that's gotta, we, ha we have to kind of fill in the, the, the background. God is a crying God. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this, that, that uh, when, Jesus, when the Father delivers Jesus over, his motive is not to get even. His motive is not to vent his wrath. His motive is not that I get my pay, you owe me. The motive of God when he delivers Jesus over is redemptive. He's aiming at redemption. Uh, the thing is this, that the reason that, that, that Jesus had to die was not to satisfy something in God. Like, I, I got to vent this rage on somebody. The reason Jesus had to die was because only this perfect expression of love, God becoming a human being, becoming our sin, becoming our curse, only God going to that extreme reveals what God really is like. And that has the power to break all of the lies that the enemies ever told us about God. Only going to that extreme and showing that perfect self-sacrificial love had the power to, to, to uh, destroy the kingdom of darkness and to break the chains, praise God. Only that expression of love has the power to abolish everything the enemy ever had on us. Like light vanquishing darkness, everything the enemy had on us, the accuser of the brethren, it was nailed to the cross and it was abolished. Because only that perfect expression of love has the power to set us free, to, to see who God really is and to accept his forgiveness and to be, be restored and reconciled to him. Only that perfect expression of love has the power to restore all of creation back to God, praise God, and bring an end to evil. And, and, and what the resurrection shows is that it worked. And the resurrection is, is, is one big declaration that God's love has conquered all. God's love has defeated the powers. God's love has defeated Satan. God's love has defeated sin. God's love has defeated death. God's love has defeated everything that could separate us from God. God's love has defeated all lies. God's love has, has, has liberated the captives, pray God. God's love has liberated creation. And the resurrection shows all of that. And that's why Jesus died. It wasn't nothing vindictive. It was redemptive. So, so to sum it all up, the, the, the cross teaches us three things, okay? Number one, God judges out of love and with a redemptive intent. That's what I just said. Number two, God judges not by acting violently, but by simply turning people over to the death consequences that are inherent in their own sin. And number three, God judges. When he brings judgment, he does it with a grieving heart. That's very different from the, what we usually mean by judgment or what we mean by wrath. But it's, it's, it's the conception we have to have in mind as we're reading the Old Testament. Now, they got glimpses of this truth, but usually they couldn't see it. And so you find a lot of pictures of God that don't reflect any of this. You'll find pictures of God where God is acting vindictive. You'll find pictures of God where, where he's not motivated by love. It's just he's motivated by sheer wrath. You'll find pictures of God where he's acting very violently. And when we come upon pictures like this, in my opinion, what I recommend, is that we exercise the same faith we exercise when we see the cross as a revelation of God. 
The cross on the surface is hideously ugly because it reflects the sin that God is bearing. That doesn't tell us what God is like. That tells us what we're like. What tells us what God is like is that we by faith look through that surface and we see God stepping this infinite distance to become this ugliness. And the beauty of God is that he's willing to become this ugliness in order to redeem us. He, he, he's a humble God who stoops this low to bear our sin and to take on this appearance that's ugly. And so when we come upon ugly pictures of God that aren't consistent with the character that we see revealed in Christ, I recommend that we see that, understand that the surface tells us a lot about the biblical author and, and the people that God is dealing with. It, it reflects the sin of the people. But what will reveal God to us? Because all scriptures God breathed for the purpose of pointing to the cross. What will re reveal God and what will point to the cross is when we look through that surface and behold God humbly stooping this far to stay in a covenantal relationship with his people, to keep on influencing them in the direction of truth. He stays in the game, even though it's going to make him look bad, even though he takes on an appearance that reflects that ugliness. So there's a lot of clouds there, and, but the clouds are still God breathed and point to the cross. But thank God there are also glimpses of truth that look exactly like the cross. And so I want to look at a couple of those. End this message by looking at a couple of these, all right? Uh, under those three categories. First, let's look at a, a, a passage that, that uh, reveals that when God judges, he does it with a redemptive motive, and, uh, and he does it out of love. The, 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 the one I want to look at is, is Isaiah chapter 19, all right? Interesting passage here. It says, See, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and shall come to Egypt. Already you see a little bit of accommodation here, don't you? He's riding on a swift cloud. You know, picture him surfing. Surfing on a cloud. And, and uh, uh, this is how all ancient people, ancient Near people, envisioned the warrior gods. They rode, on, uh, their chariots were on the clouds. And they, they, it was based on like a storm front moving in. It's kind of ominous. That's kind of like the, the idea is this ominous storm cloud coming in here. And the, the lightning was the, the, the arrows that the gods would throw down at people. And you find all sorts of pictures in the Old Testament of God riding on the clouds in a chariot, pulled by some cosmic horses, and he's, throw, he's throwing lightning bolts at people. Because this is how ancient Near Eastern people thought about it. And so God influences in the direction of truth as much as possible, but then he has to accommodate at some point. And so we get these pictures in the Bible. But this judgment here, uh, this judgment is an ominous thing. Uh, the idols of Egypt shall tremble at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in its mist. Okay, so this is, this is a storm cloud moving in, and Yahweh's on the cloud. And Egypt is, is, Egypt is an arch enemy of Israel and an arch enemy of God, and they're going to get it now. Now they're going to pay. So if, if you're writing a script on this, you'd want to have the soundtrack going something like this. Yeah, so here's, here's Yahweh coming in. It's, it, it, it's, it's butt-kicking time. And then you have a bunch of verses where Yahweh's portrayed as doing that. And, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a nasty judgment that comes on Egypt. They, they get it bad. And here, Yahweh is portrayed very much along the lines of an ancient Near Eastern warrior god and does all the things that ancient Near Eastern warrior gods do. Although, if you read it carefully, you'll see that God actually doesn't do anything. If you read these texts carefully, you'll, you'll see that the author is ascribing the violence to God, but God actually never does, doesn't do the violence. It's always other agents that carry out the violence. And the only reason these authors feel the need to ascribe this violence to God is because in the ancient Near East, they thought that's the way you praise God. Our God's more ferocious than your God. Our God's more vicious. Our God will rip your little baby's heads off. And, and they, they have these terrible, terrible, grisly, gross things that they say. And they think they're praising God and doing that. And you find that with the biblical authors as well. But God didn't do it. Okay, so it's a terrible judgment. But what's interesting then is at one point, towards the end, the sun comes out. And the Spirit of God breaks through. And we read this. It says, the day, in that day, when, when, when the, the judgment is over, 
in that day, the, there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, the arch enemy of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? And a pillar to the Lord at his border. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, the ones who did all the violence in that judgment. And he shall then send them a savior and a champion, and he shall deliver them. Oh, this is interesting. So the judgment isn't because God's mad. They're not trying to get even. It's time for you to pay. Settle the score. Retaliate. There's none of that. The reason why God is allowing this judgment to come on them, and allowing oppressors now to ransack Egypt, is because God wants to redeem Egypt. God is in love with Egypt. And, and he wants to bring them to the point where they need a, 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 a savior and a deliverer. And then Yahweh will say, I'll be that for you. Okay, so it, it, he's motivated by a, by a redemptive uh, uh, motive, a uh, longing. And then he goes on to say this. The Lord shall be known in Egypt. And the Egyptians, these arch enemies who have been just railing against me all this time, but they shall know the Lord in that day, and they shall worship with sacrifice and offerings. And they shall make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord shall strike Egypt. He shall strike and heal it. Then they shall return to the Lord, and he shall be entreated by them, and he shall heal them. If the Lord strikes, it's only to heal. And even when he strikes, he's not the one doing the striking. He's just allowing it. But if, he's, if, if he allows you to be struck, it's because, it's, it's because he wants to bring a healing in your life. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that every bad thing happens to you as a judgment of God. Not at all. Not at all. Most of the stuff that goes on in life is simply a reflection of the fact that he made a world where there's free agents who can do what they want. And they do sometimes, agent, angels and humans, they do bad stuff. So don't go blaming God for everything that happens. I'm just explaining the judgments that are here in the Bible. And when God strikes Egypt, he's doing it out of love because he wants to heal them. He wants to restore them. Because the truth is, if you read on in this chapter, God, he says it explicitly that the, 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 the Egyptians are my children as much as the Israelites are my children, as much as the Assyrians are my children. And these are all the arch enemies at the time. But he's saying, I want to redeem all of them. I want to make them all my children. And the reason why he brings this judgment is to move to that end. So whenever there's a judgment in the Bible, know that the ultimate purpose of it is not to get even or, or, or to settle the score. God's doing it out of love, and he's doing it with a redemptive motive. Secondly, God judges not by acting violently, but by turning away. And we find this reflected a lot in the Old Testament. The ones that are the most interesting, actually, are where you find, you, you find the author ascribes violence to God, but... In the same chapter or in, 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 in a close, somewhere else in, in their writing, they ascribe that violence to another human being. Because it reveals, it reveals what's going on here. They, they're aware on some level that God doesn't actually do this. They just want to ascribe it to him. I'll just give you two examples of this. Uh, in, in Jeremiah 13, the Lord is portrayed as saying, I will smash them, my people, he's talking about the Israelites here, one against the other, parents and children alike. He's going to smash families. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. I'm going to destroy them. And I, if I feel any kind of compassion, I'm going to put it aside. Any kind of mercy, I'm going to put it aside. Any kind of pity, I'm going to put it aside. Because I am going to destroy those families. I'm going to take the kids and the parents and smash them together. Now, I can't, for the life of me, imagine Jesus doing that for any reason. And so I, I would see this as being a cloudy picture. This is saying a lot about Jeremiah. Jeremiah thinks Yahweh is capable of this. And it's not surprising because this is what ancient Near some people think the gods always are doing. They're, 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 they smash people. But this is, this is a reflection of Jeremiah. Now, if you keep on reading, so already this, a passage like this, I would encourage you to 
trust that God really looks like he is revealed to be on the cross. This reveals the real heart of God. And so the surface of this portrait of God is saying a lot about the sin that God is bearing. So look through that and let it be a testimony to how far God was willing to stoop to stay in a covenantal relationship with his people. It's like always up there saying, I know you think that I go around smashing families together, children or whatever. I still love you and I'm going to keep on trying to influence you going in the future. Uh, and so I'll take you as you are. And that's why that, that cloud gets recorded in scripture. The whole scripture is a, is a record of God's progressive revelation. So it's got to be a, a record of God's in, getting clouds out of the way. Which means you're going to be finding clouds all throughout the thing leading up to Christ. But if you keep on reading in Jeremiah, you'll find that God doesn't actually do this. He, he says this later on. He says, um, where does he say it? Oh, here it is. I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in the city, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He's doing here what he does with Jesus on the cross. I'm going to deliver you over. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. The same things, the same attitudes that are ascribed to Yahweh earlier are now ascribed to Nebuchadnezzar. And the reality is it was Nebuchadnezzar who had no pity or compassion. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, who, who put him to the sword. It was Nebuchadnezzar and his armies that smashed all the families. It says that Jeremiah, being an ancient Eastern person, was not yet able to give up this idea that you're praising God by attributing violence to him. And so he ascribes the same attitudes and actions to, to Yahweh. Another example is in Jeremiah 21. Here the Lord says, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. It looks like Yahweh's going to personally come down there and do all the slaughtering in his fury and his wrath. He's going to rip them all up. But then uh, five verses later we hear this. For I set my face against the city for disaster and not for good, says the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he will burn it with fire. And he will put it to the sword, and on and on and on. Yahweh doesn't lift a finger against his people. He, he just turns them over to their enemies. As he now has found that his, his merciful protection is now just enabling them to go on getting deeper in their rebellion. So he has no choice but to withdraw. And he's doing it with a grieving heart. When we come upon portraits like this, Jeremiah couldn't conceive of it right at this point, but, 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 but we, we have to be able to conceive it that Yahweh is crying here. He hates to do this. But it's what he's got to do. It's what he's got to do. All right. So God judges not by acting violently, but by turning people over. Finally, there are passages in the Old Testament that, that capture God's grieving heart. Usually, they, 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 they don't succeed at this, but, but sometimes they do. I only, I only have time to, to give you one. Uh, in, 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 Jer or in Hosea. Um, now, Hosea is interesting because uh, he sometimes gets... There are glimpses of truth that are magnificent in Hosea, but sometimes he has portraits of God that are... The worst of the worst in the ancient Near East. Um, so, for example, I'll give you two examples of this. In Hosea 9, Yahweh's portrayed as saying, Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. He's got to, I thought love lasts forever. Love, your love endures forever. Nope. Not, not in this picture. I'm going to stop loving them. Even though they give birth, I will kill the cherished offspring of their womb. Delightful. So he's going to be a child slaughtering because he doesn't love them anymore. And then in Hosea 13, we read this. And this is, another, this is about a judgment coming on the, the Israelites. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk by the path. I will attack them like a bear bereaved of her cubs and will tear open their rib cage. 
There I will devour them like a lion. We know in the ancient years there were some cannibalistic deities who would devour their enemies okay, after they destroyed them. And here Yahweh is, this, Hosea is projecting this onto uh, Yahweh. He's, he's going to tear them to pieces. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their babies are going to be dashed into pieces. And their pregnant women have, will have their wombs ripped open. Ah, delightful. It's delightful. Now, Hosea is... It, God's working in him and God's moving forward, but this is the best that he can do right now. And Yahweh is a humble God who submit, who is like, if that's the best you can do, I'm going to stay in covenant relationship with you. I'm going to keep breathing through you, even though now I'm going to be bearing your sin and therefore taking on an appearance that reflects that sin. And we've got to be able to look through the surface and see that humble God stooping in vicious passages like that. Because I can't imagine Jesus for a moment uh, eating people alive and ripping out babies out of wounds and dashing them on the ground. That's just me. But uh, uh, to me, that's a cloud. And if they're only getting glimpses of truth, that means there's going to be a lot of clouds. So we have to expect clouds when we read the Old Testament. Now, what's amazing is that even though Hosea says these things and attributes them to God, other passages in Hosea make it clear that God doesn't lift a finger towards anybody or harm anybody. At one point in, in Ephesians 4, the Lord says that, that Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, Ephraim is, is attached to idols. Let him alone. That's what God does. That's how God judges. He leaves people alone. If that's, you want to go there, I'm trying to hang on to you, but now I've got to let you go. Um, leave them alone. And that's all God ever does. He hands over. And Hosea captures, in a beautiful way, the heart of God. At one point, the sun breaks through, and, and the, the Spirit is able to, to reveal this truth. In Hosea 11, Yahweh says, yet, this is after all this vicious judgment talk, he goes, I was the one who taught you to walk, Ephraim. I took you up in my arms. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. The picture here is of a parent in ancient Israel. They would teach the kids how to walk. They had these cords, and they would lead them how to walk with these cords. It's a tender thing. And so Yahweh here is, despite all that ancient nation rage, here we're seeing in the heart of God, is like, this is my precious baby, my precious baby. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. When mother just holds the baby so close. I bent down to them and I fed them. And then the Lord is crying here. He goes, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? And look at the, the truth here. This is what God does. I have to give you up. I have to hand you over. In this case, he's handing them over to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are the ones who do all the ripping and tearing and killing the babies and opening up wombs. That's what, that's, they were a vicious, vicious army. They're the ones who did it. Yahweh, though, is turning them over. And his heart is breaking. So he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And so this is kind of, I've got to let you go, but I can't. I bet there's at least one couple, one parent hearing this message where you've had to do this to a child. There's a couple that I knew a number of years ago who had a 24-year-old son. and He was, he drank, smoked pot, did drugs all day long, didn't, couldn't hold a job for his life, and he was still living with his parents and there came a point where they had to put him out. Because as long as they were caring for him and, and just meeting his needs, well, he didn't have any motive to get a job and to keep it and, and didn't have a motive to, you know, have to stay sober. Uh, he could just stay stoned all day long and, and play video games. And, and so they saw that they were enabling him. And they had to say, it's time for you to go out on your own. And he just rebelled and, and like, you hate me, you're mean to me, whatever. But it's like, no, it's time. You've got to get a job. You've, you, you've got to live. You know, this is... We're not, we're not helping you by enabling you to stay here and, and, and let you stay stoned and all that. And it killed them. It, it broke their heart 
But they had to let their son out there, and, and he had to fall. And he had to fall hard. And it hurt. But it was only by falling and getting hurt that finally he got, came to his senses, came to reality, and realized that you've got to make a living if you want money, and, and you can't be spending all your money on drugs if you're, 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 you're going to survive. And if you're on drugs all the time, you're not going to keep your job. And you need to keep your job. Otherwise, you can't live. So life, sometimes life has to teach our kids what we can't. You're right? You know, it's just tough love, and that's what God does here. And it's not that every bad thing that happens to us is, is, is a result of God turning us over. Not at all. In fact, Jesus in Luke 13 makes it clear that we don't have any business trying to discern the hand of God behind disasters. If God reveals that like he does in Scripture, that's one thing. But we, it's not our job to draw that conclusion. We should just assume that mayhem that happens to people is a result of living in a world that's populated with free agents. But when God does bring judgments, it's with a grieving heart, and Hosea gets it. So I, I, I end with this. How, how cloudy is your picture of God? You know, we've been given the unclouded picture of God, but, it, but see, even having gotten that, it's possible for us to hold on to our projections. Where are, we, where are we projecting our assumptions about what God should be like? And how is that clouding the true picture of God? Because as I say all the time around here, uh, the, the, your picture of God is all important. The beauty of your relationship with God, the passion of your relationship with God, the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. Everything hangs. Whatever you do with that Old Testament stuff, you don't have to agree with me, but everything hangs on our resolving that God looks exactly like Jesus from beginning to end down to his very, very essence. God looks as, his, 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 as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross. And so I encourage us to lock that in and do two things. One, spend time with that God. Especially if you have had ugly pictures of God circulating in your mind for however long, your whole life maybe. Uh, you need to weed those out. And the best thing to do is to spend time letting God love you with the kind of love that he revealed on the cross. And, and surrender your imagination open to the Lord and let the Spirit just bring you to Jesus and, 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 and go places and let him bring healing into your life and let him say to you all of the things he said about you in Scripture, but he says it with your name, making eye contact with you, feel it in his embrace, sense it in his presence, spend time with that God. And number two, I encourage us to, as we go throughout the day, remind ourselves about that God. And Paul says, bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. And if ever there's a thought that we need to bring captive to Jesus Christ, it's our thinking about God. And, and you can only do that on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Remind yourself in the morning and at night, maybe write post-it notes if you need to, that you're always walking in the presence of God, a God who loves you with an everlasting love. You are right now loved by God with, with, with a perfect love that could never be improved in all eternity. Remind yourself of that. And that not only not, not washes out the pollution of our, our minds with regard to God, it, 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 it you know, contrasts with all the authoritarian pictures we have. It does that, but you also find it has one other advantage, and that is that it puts you in a very good mood. We would stand. It does. It can't help but brighten your day. When you're aware that you're loved with a perfect, everlasting love, all the circumstances of your life become sort of inconsequential. You're having a good day, even if you're having a very bad day. Uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here as I'm getting ready to close. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you're not surrendered to him, I encourage you to consider doing that. And if you come up here and talk to these folks, they'd love to explain what that, what that, what that is all about. Father, as we leave here, would you remind us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Whenever we are in our minds turning towards any other conception of God, uh, any love but God, uh, anything we inherited along the way uh, that could compromise our understanding of your beauty, 
Help us to stay vigilant and setting that aside and turning our eyes to Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the revealer of God, the revelation of truth. Let that be true in our mind and everything that disagrees with it, a liar. And if you agree with that, say amen and go out and love on your neighbors. God bless you guys. Keep your eyes fixed.